With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. We have all been there. You want a taste of home, and so you call your mom or your tia and ask them to share a beloved family recipe. Often there is resistance. The recipe is almost never written down and measurements are inexact because the secret ingredient is almost always experience and intuition. But what happens when in lieu of that knowledge, you look for a cookbook only to learn that there are virtually no books in print in the United States that celebrate your food and your culture? This is what happened to Carla Vasquez as she looked for Salvadoran cookbooks, and it set her off on an epic and unexpected quest to capture the Salvi soul. Carla, I'm having that thing that I have, a thing is happening to me that happens periodically, which is that I have followed you for so long that I have to remind myself that we're not actually friends. (laughs) I've never met you in person. That's right. It's our first time talking in a formal capacity. Yes, absolutely. I mean, isn't that what's so wonderful about social? Like that is still the golden nugget in all of this chaotic energy that is social media is the wonderful folks that you find each other and you're on the same frequency, it feels. So a part of you feels at home with these strangers, (laughs) When is it that you decide you want to pursue a formal culinary education? So that happened because I was diagnosed with a chronic health illness. I am a type 1 diabetic. So I think I have my little insulin pin here. If you know anything about diabetes, you know that your success of being healthy with it is really dependent on what you eat. So when I was diagnosed, I was 23 and 
I was so confused. I had just finished a few half marathons, was on that smoothie life and everything. And then I'm told I have this. And the doctor explains, well, it's just one of those things. It's genetics. There's nothing in your diet. It's not that you were eating bad or anything. This is just something that was going to happen to you. And I thought, okay, well, how do I manage this? And he said, well, I would advise you to not eat tortillas. Don't eat this greasy food. A lot of that Latin food is not going to be very favorable for your health. And that was just heartbreak because I felt at that time that without realizing, you know, he was really saying you have to make a choice between your health or your culture. And it sucks that your culture is really unhealthy for you. Is really, you know, the subtext of all of what he is trained to say to me. And I was really bothered by this. And I thought like, this guy is just wrong. This, there's no way that this is true. My food is healthy for me. I am going to figure out a way. And so I really start getting involved in the food justice scene uh, here in LA, start managing farmer's markets. And the farmer's market where I'm working at at the time says, we need to get sales up for peaches, I think. And the farmer's market manager said like, do you think you could do a cooking demo? And I thought like, it was cantaloupe, it was cantaloupe. I thought, I I can't do a cooking demo. Like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> Eventually I talked to, you know, uh, my parents. I was like, maybe I'll do it. Let's just try. I did a cantaloupe salsa, I remember. And it was fun. I had a good time. We kept doing it. And finally she says, these are so great. We're getting people to come in to try food. And the farmers are happy because there's more traffic. So we're going to put you on the schedule every single week. Eventually, people would stay after class or after my demo and say, hey, I have this ingredient. How do I use this? Or what's another way that I can prepare this? And then they started to call me chef. Chef Carla. <laughs> I'm looking at the asparagus today and I would love to know how you recommend <laughs> me using it. And I thought, oh, who's going to tell them? Like, I was really trying to help this farmer's market in East Hollywood who, you know, the only reason I got involved is because of everything I was learning about the access to food and how integral when we talk about social justice and when we look at the scope of problems and challenges in our communities, food is, is there. Food is political. Who is picking your food? Who gets to eat certain food? And I was not there to make cantaloupe salsa, but of course, that's what, you know, you found me doing. And I, when I started to get people, you know, to come up after class and asked me these questions, I thought like, I really need to be about it. And I really need to go get more training. Of course, I wasn't going to go into more debt and go to a school that I'd have to pay $60,000 a year for training. And so I found a program here in um, Culver City, shout out to the new school of cooking. And I did their program. It was like a six month program, something like that. And I just loved it. I got a lot of training, of course, like 
there's a lot of questions, right? Why are all these concepts French? Why is there no mention of plantain on this curriculum? (laughs) Plantain is eaten all over the globe. For real. It is a true hero in the food world. It, It can be baked, it can be fried, it can be made into all kinds of things. It can do no wrong. It blesses any space that it enters, pretty much. And I thought, like, why? Why? And finally, it was in the egg class, or it was an egg week. So I was in class, and in this egg class, someone raised their hand, my classmate, and she asked the instructor, like, why is it that we say words like saute? Why do we say words like omelet? Like these are French words. And she, I believe, was Middle Eastern. Our instructor is Korean American. Here I am, Salvadoreña. And the whole class is just like, holy shit, that is a great question. You know, we all kind of lean in a little more. And the instructor kind of looks up and is, you know, she was chopping some shallots and she thinks for like two seconds and then snaps her fingers and says, I know why. And we all kind of just like, okay, tell us why. It must be because the French were the first to document that process. And even though now I know there's much more to it, there's imperialism, there's colonialism, there's a lot more to the process now, but it is true. Omelets are ubiquitous. And what really made sense in the light bulb that turned on was holy shit documentation Mm -hmm. it has power hey is that all it takes don't i have a journalism degree isn't all the lament i've had because i haven't been able to find it maybe i can document it right all these Things that had been happening on the peripheral were just kind of coming together in this moment. Carla, what is your favorite Salvadoran dish? My goodness, I will say that one dish I go back to uh, a lot is a classic sopa de frijoles salvadoreños because it is there for you even when you wish you could go out and forget that you have frijoles in la casa. Um, but it is the thing that I absolutely love. It's nutritious. It's something that connects me to my great grandmother. And I just, I love that this is a food that my ancestors enjoyed and literally sustained them so that I could be here now. Um, because it's a food that when times have been hard, when access to proteins has been a a political thing when resources have been scarce you have una libra de frijoles and that feeds you and that's there for you so what a perfect brilliant answer that's at the intersection of everything that you care about right food social justice community culture I love it I did kind of come into this project wanting to connect with my grandmother, remember her, because her cooking was 
like little bookmarks all throughout my life, right? Like what she made for birthdays, what she made for Sundays after church, what she made for regular lazy Saturdays that we just kind of mosey on over there, right? And yeah, as, as an adult now, having gone to cooking school and having done a lot of cooking projects, longer cooking projects over the weekend, um, you realize how much of what I kind of thought I could have or maybe expected to have from my grandma, from my grandmother or my mom as a kid was really an unfair ask. You're really wanting that part of culture because it's the one you can touch at least three times a day. But when you have that kind of ask to a grandparent or a mom and you say, I want you to show me this recipe for, you know, pernil or tamales, like you're really asking for decades worth of knowledge to be given to you in a way that's user-friendly for you. When really this was a process that took them, you know, burns, scars, like, you know, the experiences that cost something. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads. What did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pamper Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. And where there are gaps in that knowledge, right, for all of us, is where... You go to your tia and you say, can you give me a recipe for this? And she's like, I don't have a recipe for that. I've never quantified it. I've never written it down. And in those gaps is when we begin to Google and look for recipes that fill those knowledge gaps, right? So that at least we have scaffolding structure for some of these things. Your Googling 
leads you to a very big truth about Salvadoran food in this country, which is there are only two cookbooks about Salvadoran food in print currently in the U.S. What does that tell you about the place of Central American culture and El Salvador more specifically in the United States? When I first Googled that, because you ask El Señor Google everything, or as my mom likes to say, Googlealo, you know, <laughs> which I love that about my mom. She's, she's adorable. So I, I went and I was really heartbroken. I thought, this is absurdo. Like, why are there only two cookbooks? And when I did this initial search, I actually got five book results. The other three were children's books and they were just bilingual food books. Immediately, I thought, okay, well, it sucks that there's only these two, but let me get these two. The first one I get was printed in El Salvador by Maria Rosario. And this is like the OG book. It's black and white. The pictures are also black and white. The recipes are not super thorough. They're more like loose maps, right? They'll, they'll get you there, but they, it won't be perfect. And then the second one is this book by Alicia Maher. She's the first one who wrote a Salvadoran cookbook in English called Delicious El Salvador. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. And I click to buy it and it's sold out everywhere. So I'm looking through all of these uh, other secondary sellers, right? And they're being sold for $85, $150, $300. I have a screenshot of one that they priced it at $1,200. And I thought, why is this so expensive? I paid around $150 and to get my copy. And I thought like, man, this really sucks. Like I had to save up for that book. She researched 70 recipes and I was so grateful to have a piece of it, to hold it. And then, of course, it begs the question, why is it this way? And why can't I find anything out there that gives me that information? You know, I, I went to the library here in L.A. I joined the Culinary Historians of Southern California around that same time because I thought, if I can't find the answers on Google, well, we're going to have to find them the old-fashioned way, which is with these culinary gastronomy associations. The librarian who specializes in finding resources for this particular subject, you know, looks and finally says to me, it looks like if you want to find this book, you're going to have to write, write it yourself. And that's not what you want to hear when you are craving knowledge, when you're craving understanding of something that you see everyone else kind of have. And I thought like, why doesn't it matter? Why is no one else upset that there's a whole region of Latin America that we have no documented information about? From our people in El Salvador, I can't tell you the feelings. I, I can't even really express them exactly how I felt them at that moment because I felt so vulnerable and what I 
when when you want to understand home and when you want to understand the land that my grandmother farmed in i have so many stories of my great grandmother working for work and picking coffee because that's how she was able to make a living and you can't find anything you don't have a map you feel a little you feel a little lost and that's when i called my grandmother and so i asked her you know malusi i really want to make salpicon help me make salpicon she was like carla i got you we're going to do this yeah it was from there and her talking about her experiences while she was teaching me this recipe her experiences as a woman surviving in El Salvador i realized that she no longer was la mujer que sufrió right she suffered but she was lucia the hero of the story and it was through this cooking time that you know as the food nourished my body these stories were nourishing that part of my soul that went into that library looking for answers and couldn't find them and realizing they're here with my grandmother after talking to my grandmother i interviewed a few more people in my family and then i happened to reunite with my one salvi high school friend and then my one college salvi friend and said hey you know they asked what are you up to well this is what i'm up to and they immediately say are you thinking of interviewing more people because if you are you should talk to my mom because i've always wanted to record her story eventually i found myself in their living room saying okay tell me what you want to tell me and eventually i did that six or seven times and i had seven women i had seven women who i had sat with I pitched to them what if I collect stories and recipes and maybe we'll put something together right and when I first pitched it to my grandmother before I had a name before I had a full you know concept she immediately got it she said Carla esto se trata del legado de la mujer salvadoreña this is about the legacy of salvadoran women immediately she really set the tone for me So this is all pushing us in the direction of asking Carla where's the cookbook. Yes. <laughs> ah, that question. The cookbook is being made. It is in the process. It's been a long process. So I have been once I realized like hey, this is something that I can really go ahead and Do I have a a real concept here? I have 25 women. I have a community who's behind me. I know people care. We all care about this and we are carrying this together. Um I started pitching my cookbook to agents. I started telling people in the industry, you know, hey, like this is what I'm doing. And you know, some agents, the one of the first few agents I spoke to who I only approached them because they had been the agent for a very similar cookbook and you know I sent them what I had and and they said I don't think that the American public will know what this is or that they'll know what to do with it 
in retrospect, I wish I would have said to them, like, I am the American public. And I started sending a ton of pitches and some folks would say to me, hey, we found that compilation books don't do so well. Um, you know, several other people were like, ah, well, maybe if you get more followers, you might be able to, we might have a case. As in Instagram followers. Yes, Instagram followers. I had uh, one agent who said, if you can get to 10,000, then we can talk. Um, fortunately, through amazing community support, we got to the 10,000. I told them, hey, I finally have the 10,000. And then I never heard from them. Got completely ghosted. And okay, fine. And a lot of that just really wore on me. Like at, by this point, I've been working on this project for like four and a half years of doing it on the side of, of trying to stitch or Frankenstein a, a career, a income so that I could do this, so that I could be available to the project. And yeah, it was really, really hard. And now in uh, October of last year, I think it was October, November, I finally found an agent. Um, it took several years and this was the only agent who ever said to me, Carla, I don't know what was wrong with everyone else who heard your pitch. This is wonderful. I cannot wait to work on this. And to be so exhausted and hear someone say, I cannot wait. I'm so anxious to work on this. Feels, um, I don't even know if the word is great. Oh man, I can't tell you how wonderful it felt like, oh, I have help now like from the inside, you know? One of the reasons I was so excited to talk with you, Carla, is that very often we talk with people after the big accomplishment, once the play is written or the album is out or the book is published. And so there's something just really exciting to me about talking with you while this project is in process in part because it allows me to ask you my final question, which is what can we all do to support you in this journey? Thank you. That is always a great question. So we're following you on Instagram. Following on Instagram. Yes. I am also, I host online cooking classes and that was something very much we had to pivot because in-person classes were a no-go in March of last year. So tons of online classes. Um, I offer one at least every week and they'll be back up in February. Um, but I, I also, honestly, I, I, I really want folks to, to really send out like those prayers to really bless communities that they'd like to see more uh, more projects from, you know, and we, we can say those things. We can say those things because we know that when we talk good about a friend that we know and their project, whoever hears it, you know, gets picked up or they get that phone call, you know, 
And I think words, written words are powerful. Spoken words are powerful. They are absorbed. They are, they are energy and food. It energizes you like all of it is energy. And so I, I mean it in a very real scientific way. When you say something, it matters. And when you bless communities and you say, I, I bless the Central American community. I, I bless Salvadoran creators who are having a hard time producing their heart's desire or the genius that they're here to share with the world. I bless them. You know, like it is, it's, it's with my whole body that I feel it because the, there's been suffering. And I think that so many of these communities we get talked about in a way that doesn't bless us. So if we can send those words out, that it, it, it means something. Carla, I cannot wait to hold this book in my hand. Oh man, I can't either. Thank you for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lentico-Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Paulina Velasco is our senior producer. Our lead producer is Cedric Wilson. Kojin Tashiro is our associate sound designer. Manuela Bedoya is our social media editor and ad ops lead. We love hearing from you when you email us at hola at latinatolatina.com, when you slide into our DMs on Instagram, when you tweet at us at Latina to Latina. Remember to subscribe, follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening. And please, I know I ask this all the time, but do leave a review. It is one of the fastest, easiest ways to help us grow. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.